Hello, and welcome to the Psycho Kitty podcast, a series of fun and interesting conversations with people that I kind of pick up off the street. Uh, to, today, uh, we're being joined by a good friend of mine, Annetta Black. Annetta, what makes you interesting? <laughs> you do a lot of things. So, I, I mean, there's a lot to choose from. I, I, I do some things. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I, uh, I think my, my main thing is trying to surface unusual stories and giving people a platform to, to share those um, so that we can all learn things constantly. That's, that's my, my main thing in a lot of different disciplines, but that's, that's sort of my area. And uh, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the staging format that, you have that's, that you've got going now. Well, I run a, a lecture series, a cocktail hour lecture series called Odd Swan. I'm one of the co-founders and the curator. And um, it's the best stories from history, art, science, and adventure. With, adventure! With, <laughs> with uh, a whole group of, of um, it's a collaborative project with um, more than 70 speakers and new people all the time. Uh, so it's not just experts; it's anybody can anybody can join in. My myself being not an expert, also. And and one of the things I, I actually that's how I know you is from uh, getting in, on board that ship. Um, but one of the things I, I've found is that history is best served with booze. Absolutely. I mean, a, <laughs> a lot of things are, and I, I learned that by doing by doing walking tours and realizing that there's something. Very, um, it's it, it's loosening up, but it's also convivial when people get together to 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 drink. And so when we would go and do walking tours, and then afterwards where we'd get together for a beer and people would talk about things, I realized that there was sort of a magic chemistry there that that really helped. Yeah, the old let social people, lubricant. Yeah, absolutely, and lets people engage and 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 feel okay talking about things that they might not really know that much about. And uh, Odd Salon's in its second year. Yes. Uh, how did it? form like uh, how did that process how did how did you get from there to stage well um i'm a writer and um i've been fascinated with uh this concept of the illustrated lecture for a long time my great 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 grandfather great great grandfather great great grandfather, two greats um alexander black uh did illustrated lectures in the 1800s he was part of the lyceum circuit um, he worked at the Brooklyn. It's really Institute. cool. I didn't know that part. Yeah, um, he he was part of the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences. Uh, he was a photographer, and um, back then he had this moment where he was giving um, a demonstration, just a, a showing of candid photography when it's pretty early on in candid photography. Um, and he had pictures of people doing things, kids playing hopscotch um, in the street and uh, a lady getting shoved into a paddy wagon and people sleeping on park benches in, in Central Park. And he noticed that people started applying a narrative to the pictures, even though there wasn't a narrative. He wasn't trying to tell a story. But there's something about visuals and presentation that make people... Um, want to connect the dots. Want to connect the dots. And so what he did is he took that... And his big invention was a, a proto-cinema um, thing called the picture play where he combined um, a fiction story that he wrote, like a play, and photos, about four photographs um, a minute with actors on in sort of a stage set. And he presented it almost like a feature-length film, but with only four images per second, but in front of... Or, uh, Per minute, in front of a in front of an audience with sound effects and music and and reading the voices and all that kind of stuff, 
And then he went on tour. And this was a whole thing. Tons of people went on tour doing these kinds of things. They, they did Magic Lantern shows. They gave scientific lectures. They did book tours and like read from their, read from their novels. And there was this, this thing called the American Lyceum Movement that because of reading my great-great-grandfather's autobiography, I found out existed. And when I was kind of like a pre-teenager, I thought, well, that sounds awesome. I would totally like to do that. Is that a thing you can do? And then not really. There isn't really a thing anymore. And um, so I decided to make it a thing again. And this right here, because I've, I've known you for a couple of years now, mm-hmm. but it took me inviting you into the podcast and doing this to get this story, because this is a great story. I didn't yeah. I didn't know the historical, like the family connection to the... Yeah, he was kind of a, a, a dude about town. He was a, like a newspaper man and a photographer. He wrote one of, if not the first book on um, Kodaking, uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of the phrase for box camera enthusiasts. Um, I used to have one of the old brownie cameras. Yeah. And in my family, he was always kind of a a larger than life character. My dad and I have uh, worked together to sort of uh, collect materials about him. Um, But when I started Odd Salon, what I thought we would be doing is I thought that we would be um, bringing in like those old things, we'd be bringing in authors and lecturers and historians, and they would come in and they would sit down for 45 minutes and they would tell us a story and then the rest of us would just sit around and we would have cocktails and it would be awesome because somebody else would be doing all the talking. And um, <laughs> not quite as, how it worked out. As you know, that is not how it worked out at all. But um, I actually think that what we've come to is something really, really special where the stage doesn't just belong to people who already have the stage elsewhere. Because history, art, science, and adventure, the humanities, they belong to all of us. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't just be historians learning and and telling history or or artists and and scientists talking to each other about things that they already know about. I think it's really special that we have people from all different kinds of disciplines coming together to talk about weird stuff and getting excited about research when none of us, well, most of us are not in an academic environment. Yeah, it's like uh, the first talk I did, I think it was for the Spirits series, series, which was the proto Odd Salon. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, I had somebody drop out. Here, Ryan, you said you wanted to jump in. Here, you know, here's some research. You read a hours. week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you get a whole week? No, no, you're right. I only had a couple of days to like, yeah. put together the talk. Um, yeah, but it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I didn't know, you know, like, you know to dive into this little subject, like, I didn't know much about the Whiskey Rebellion before I started putting that together. That's right. That's right. And it's a really interesting story. And I actually remember how you ended up in that spot was mm. because we were having a really hard time actually serving the sample boozes. And you totally jumped in like a rock star to, <laughs> to help us physically distribute to the, the packed masses. <laughs> um, well, 20 years yeah. of waiting tables, some you know, muscle memory kicks in. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was fun. The the booze series was fun, but I think that was sort of where we test drove mm-hmm. the idea of just getting a panel of people to everybody gets a certain amount of time to learn a certain subject and then get up there and 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 learn narrative structure and learn like what works when you're trying to tell a story, and it's as much a learning process for all of us on the stage as it is for for anybody else. Yeah, and. It's definitely developed its own, like that crowd has developed its own peculiarities. And one thing I've noticed, so from the prototype, we have call, uh, audience callbacks. Right. Uh, ships being the big popular yes. one. Yeah. And I, I, think, think, I think science might be taking over at this point. Because I, I think 
ships. I think the like last few ones I've noticed is that it's starting to lose its jump. Yeah, I don't know if it's that we're cycling uh, audiences and there's not the same enthusiasm or just a different enthusiasm because I mean you're still selling out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I think I think that there's something great about the call and response thing in that uh, I like watching the audience. We have about forty percent new people every time, even if we have a packed house, and. I really like that the people who have been there all the time know the words and they're like, oh my God, science! And scream things back. But there's, um, but the people who are new, at the, you can hear it change over the course of the night. Like they're, they haven't, they're still holding their first cocktail and they're not sure what's going on. And you normally don't yell back at lecturers. Normally it's poor form. <laughs> yeah, we encourage <laughs> but it. But we encourage it. And there's something so great about like in the second half of the program when as soon as somebody cottons on to like something, oh my God, trimaran! And... <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think, Vessels. I think, I think there's a, there's just an evolution. The ship's one is, is sort of like ye oldie, <laughs> right. um, callback, but, um, people are getting, I like that there's a permission to get witty and holler back stuff yeah, and that a little bit of heckling. Yeah. And, and Stuart was playing with that, with his Cthulhu, uh, mm-hmm. talk with all the he, like craft was, nerds. Yeah. He was setting up a, well, I pronounce it this way. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter. It's all, pro- you know, there's many pronunciations even from the source. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, just um. So what with Odd What are some of your favorite bits from Odd Like, what what has really stood out for you in the couple of years? I mean, you were talking about. I remember we did the Adamants one time when you actually made uh, call out cards. Yeah. And while that was a fun idea, I think we call out card people took it a little bit too far. Oh, I think I think I think that whole evening. Uh, sort of descended into mayhem, but it was fine. It was the yeah. end of the year. Uh, I think I think that was fine. Um, it it did have uh, moments of of craziness, and I think I might remember less of the talks and than, more of the signs. Yeah. Although that was the evening, Azolda. Um, she gave I think one of my favorite talks ever, which is the, her talk Saint, about Saint Olga, Saint Olga of Kiev. Um, the revenging saint of, of Kiev. And we should, we should nutshell, it, nutshell the story real quick. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I might get dates wrong, but I'm pretty sure 9th century Kiev, uh, she, was a, um, she was married to the king of a tribal area, and uh, her husband was killed by the neighboring. neighboring. This happens a lot when you, people yeah. are fighting. Wal- the neighboring walled city. It's important mm-hmm. that it was a walled city. Um, and then afterwards, everyone's mad at each other, and they... they um, the city that had killed her husband sends emissaries to the grieving widow and says, so sorry about your husband. Um, you know, mistakes were made, but we have a prince and we would really, really like it if you would marry our, our prince. And um, she says, oh, that's so interesting. Let's take this conversation over here to this to this place where, whoops, and then she pushes the, and the emissaries into a shallow grave and they are buried alive. And, uh, and then time goes on and uh she sends her emissaries to the town and says i'm so sorry about that thing that happened with your ambassadors um let's make it better i would totally like to marry your prince how about you send all of your fancy people and the prince and a wedding party and everything else and come to this very specific wooden structure on my right. land. Some, a nice, big, fancy, great hall. A nice, fancy, great hall with, with large, substantial doors. And when the wedding party is all there, uh, Olga and her people close the doors from the outside and bar and bar. She it. got them drunk first. If oh, I, I, th- I think, yeah. well, of course. Cocktails. Get, get, get them drunk first um, and sneak out the side doors, lock the place, and then burn it to the ground. 
So that was the second act of, of revenge, the, the first being the buried alive. And then the, the next thing was um, after that, um, she, the, the, oh, she laid siege to the walled city, to the other city. I've had enough. I'm now taking you. That's city. it. Fuck you guys. We're done. And she, she lays siege and they finally, they say, what, what can we do? How can we make you happy? How can we get out from under the siege? Oh, please, 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 we please, surrender. Please, please, please. And she says, well, okay. If you if you want to please me, I'm I'm going to be fair about this. I'm not requiring great tributes. All I want is birds. I want bir- a, a symbol of peace from every household. And I think it was it was sparrows and doves, if mm-hmm. I'm re- if I'm recalling correctly. And I might be I might not be. Um, and uh, so each household had to give birds, and they would send the birds to be gathered by um, Saint Olga's uh, soldiers. And they brought them all back to Olga's camp, where they tied tiny pieces of sulfur <laughs> to the little bird legs. And embers. And... And, and set them ablaze. And the birds, freaking out, birds on fire, freaking out, went home en masse and burned the city to the ground from inside the walls. So those were her, her three epic And accents. who says history is boring? <laughs> I know. Well, and also, and, and that she was apparently made a saint. <laughs> I think that history in Russia the, and the church is, is different than... Well, their orthodox is a little different. It is. And, of course, uh, Salda made sugar cookies with uh, cinnamon hots and gave those out to everybody. Yes, yes. They were, they were thrown, thrown aloft into the, into the crowd. And I just, I, I love it because it, it is an obscure little piece, little piece of history um, that none of us had heard before. And it was just brought to life in a beautiful way. And everybody got sugar cookies with red hots. Yes. And do you, know, you think that's a good encapsulation of like what Adslan is, is stories like that? Yeah, I think I think she had want she found that story. She dug it up somewhere and she was really excited about it. And what I like as as curator of nights like that is that I don't know the story. I just have to take it on somebody else's word or when you wanted to do your thing on on bat bombs and stuff <laughs> in in World War II that everybody in the group finds these stories that fascinate them and then they spend I mean hopefully 30 days but maybe 48 hours whatever <laughs> throwing together a talk. And so often they are just magical. And it's just time and time again, you, you learn these things that you would not have stumbled across, that you wouldn't have browsed your way towards, that um, you know, normal narrative history doesn't usually throw our way. Little, little details that get swept aside. Yeah. Well, it, I think it's also the meeting of the minds. It's, it's so much more than, than lectures in history. It's really about the people like you who are a fellow. Um, uh, the people that have come to the project and added their ideas and their personal areas of interest. And we have, we have a bunch of medievalists and we have mm-hmm. a bunch of practicing scientists and we have people with expertise that is, you know, way beyond anything that be considered casual. Yeah. That well, certainly outside of my areas of, of knowledge that I wouldn't be able to assign to somebody. And I just think that's amazing. Um, and so You've been, I mean, Adsalan, you said uh, you're a co-founder. Mm-hmm. Um, who, is it, who are the other people that helped you, the core that got this started, that then expanded to the, the big pool? Uh, my co-founders are Trey Balchowski and Rachel James, who are, have both been curators also. Um, and uh, so they're, they're the co-founders and my partners that got this started. But in the last year and a half, it has really, um, we have 30 fellows and those are all speakers who are who are really involved in the project, and it, it's as much all of our project. I feel like mm-hmm. as it is as it is mine. I think I'm just there to sort of like steer the craft. 
Yeah, because uh, we've had uh, how many curators? No, so for a uh, curator is the person who's pretty much in charge of orchestrating a night. Yeah. You know, deciding what stories are going to fit the theme and helping people present with that. And then cat, uh, cat herding them into place. Yes, yeah. <laughs> a lot of cat herding. It's like, it's like one part being able to be the creative editor of it and then a lot of of cat herding and stick poking and I mean and I know I've like constantly missed my deadline for getting slides in on time yeah but. everybody misses their their the deadlines are are, are wildly ignored <laughs> but we somehow managed to, to make it on stage and, and no one has gotten the all cat gift night yet so <laughs> I guess that's success but um on the were you asking I was asking like uh, who are some of the other curators I mean like how many people have run have run the ship for the night um, so as of now we've had um, in addition to uh, Trey Rachel and myself we've had one two three we're gonna have five guest curators this year we've got uh, Tamara has curated a couple of them and she's also joined in as a tremendous as tremendous yeah. help and Todd curated and uh, Matt Nelson curated and, oh, and Jade. So it's four. Mm -hmm. four, four we get a half point years. for the our uh, pop up show at Cal Academy. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Which was a whole different uh, bag of cats. That was yeah. You know, doing the street performance kind of at a nightclub where people don't want to stop and listen. Yeah. And yeah. then you realize that oh, these lines are your best friend. Absolutely, captive audience. Captive audience that gets told about killer ants, I think, for uh, had, 90 seconds. We had the 90-second pitch for killer ants. We had a Lovecraft Cthulhu quickie. Mm -hmm. And then uh, tuberculosis and vampirism was the... Those were the three pieces that we went... Yeah, for, for science audience. Yeah, that was good. That was good. So, I mean, Atsalon is great. I've, I've Like I said, I, I've been involved since the proto-stage going, yes, this is fun. Um, but... What else do you have going on? Um, well, my what what else do I have going on? Uh, right now, I'm I'm building a, uh, a a a very weed gingerbread environment for a tiny tiny Burning Man installation that's taking up all my time, which is a, a, a very time consuming thing. Um, I um, I'm also I have my own writing projects. My my main my main side writing project is um, about. Um, explorers who failed or died in their expeditions. And that's sort of my ongoing personal research project. Um, I just discovered that, I don't know how I missed this, but uh, the Edo Sutro collection mm -hmm. at San Francisco State University, it's part of the state library collection. And I had no idea, but they have the Joseph Banks collection, his personal letters. Joseph Banks was the naturalist who accompanied James Cook on his Endeavor okay. expedition in the um, 1770s. Um, and, uh, it's just amazing. I mean, they have, they have thousands and thousands of, of pieces of personal ephemera, including his letters to like, he was the president of the Royal Society in London for most of his like adult career. And there's just like, it's as if every email you ever sent after you've passed away, somebody, mm -hmm. some enthusiastic academic takes every email and makes a perfectly typed card saying that, um, you know, on, on, on Tuesday, whatever date that you sent a, a message to someone asking if they were going to be here for the podcast. <laughs> and then that lives in it, a perfectly, perfectly organized um, 
folder of uh, archival folder. So they have just thousands and thousands of his uh, pieces of correspondence. They have a small collection of his books. Um, they don't have anything from. Yeah, that, 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 that just a uh, uh, total side note. It makes you wonder about how correspondence gives us a really good view of the day to day life of like of the past. And with having everything gone digital, will we lose that? Will the next few generations, you know, they won't have anyone that'll that'll be able to stop and like, well, you know, I can tell this much about this person because he had this appointment, this appointment, this appointment, you know. It is interesting because in some ways it's better cataloged because it's all theoretically there in a digital document if someone doesn't hit delete. But there's something about, I spend a lot of time in archives and um, we've also done a lot of, yeah. as you know, like California and local history kind of projects. And um, I've spent whole days going through, you know, poorly indexed files where you open it up and it's just full of somebody's private letters, some long dead person's private letters. I One of the things that I, I got to see at the California Historical Society, I was looking for kind of something else. Um, I pulled a flat, one of the flat files that was for uh, one of the early California pioneers. And in it were the letters that his wife, who he had left behind in Missouri or wherever, had written him. And they're, they're still in their envelopes with her handwriting on them. And you pull them out, and they're in this wonderful blue paper that they used in the, in the 1850s. And the first ones are so encouraging. You know, dear John, I'm so proud of everything that you're doing. It's going to be amazing when we're all back together. Little little Timmy is doing well and misses you. And then they're increasingly sort of angry and desperate as, you know, the months go by and she hasn't heard from you might be dead for all I know by now. <laughs> oh, no. And and, you know, writing but she's also writing anecdotes about, you know, um, my sister broke her leg. Um, the cart, the, the wheel on the cart has broken. Little to me does not actually know who you are anymore. Like you've been <laughs> gone too long. And he, But you're seeing it all in their handwriting and the difference between the day when she's writing kind of, you know, still in love and happy versus like angry and cranky and, and despondent. You see that like tiny cramped handwriting and you also just get to see like the paper that they chose. They, they had a lot of, um, in the 1850s, there was a thing for not just blue paper, but um, they would print uh, like postcard art, mm -hmm. but on these large pieces of paper. And so when you pull out people's private correspondences, they you sometimes just as like a bonus, you get these beautiful like map views of San Francisco or whatever. And that I think we're really we're really losing. No one's going to get the handwriting. Yeah, I mean, you you there will be no difference in hand in, in typing. Yeah, <laughs> except for maybe spelling. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one of the most amazing things about going to archives for me, like, mm. I, so I had another moment at the California Historical Society specifically with, you know, the the um, San Francisco Committees of Vigilance. There were mm. two of there were two of them in San Francisco. They were like citizen uprisings against crime in the in the Gold Rush city, and they had these medallions. And I'd heard about them. I'd seen them on the internet. They're these uh, like oversized coins that had um, Lady Lady um, uh, Justice, it, but instead of blind, she is. She is seeing because she's all exacting, seeing justice. Yeah, yes. all seeing justice. She's exacting her revenge. Um, and I had gone. I'd done like a little bit of um, a looking around for for these things a few years ago. Kind of scouted around and sort of come to the conclusion that you couldn't put your hands on one at this point. I'd seen one under glass somewhere. And uh, another one of these moments where I was going through a a largish folder of miscellaneous stuff. I think related to Emperor Norton. Oh yes, flipping through that, things. That was, a, that was a fun night. You know, thanks yeah. to to Adslan and you, I got to touch Emperor Norton's knobby rod. Yeah, I know. It, 
and and knobby it was. Yes. And long. Yes. Um, I'm actually a little a little high for him. Um, <laughs> but uh, going through just uh, paper correspondence and people's calling a, cards. A, there, there had to have been a fashion on walking sticks and like you know where your hand fits. There 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 yeah. was actually yes. Um, and I think that was pretty late in life mm-hmm. acquisition. Um, but anyhow, I was going through this folder of just sort of like not very exciting things, and there's a small manila envelope. And it says Committees of Vigilance, and it's weirdly heavy. And just it's got one of those little latches with string, and open it up, and there and slid slid it out onto my hand, and there is one of the one of the badges, the medallions from yeah. the Committee of Vigilance, from 1854, in my hand, just like touching history. Mm. Uh, it's so to me those moments are so are so incredible. Um, the physical objects and then, and then also the, the handwritten stuff. So I don't know with everything being digital, it may, it does definitely lose something, but we might gain something with the abundance the and, be, and the fact that it's all organized. It's all, it's all self-cataloged. It, it, but then we get like, you know, information overload. Yeah, it's true. It's true. That's a problem. And it's a problem even for, for researchers with stuff that's 200 years yeah. old. If you have every single letter that Joseph Banks ever wrote, Including all the boring ones, like and, you know, the grocery list, and the grocery and... list. Yes, exactly, and the the things that don't matter. If you're doing, how much research is enough? Like mm-hmm. how how do you have to read every single one of those letters in order to be able to say there's only twenty of them that matter? <laughs> do I have to read forty of them or forty thousand letters to yeah, say that makes me think like you know the artist going always retouching a, a piece like you know when is when is it finally enough, ready to be done? You know, I need one more little you know, like oh this the lighting over here or you know like yeah. It's that similar, like what what is enough? All right, this is done and ready to go. Or I need to read, you know, I need to read four more grocery lists before I can yeah. Yeah. understand his daily diet. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's really true, and it's actually I think one of the things that doing this project, um, the Adlon project, and um, working with the California Historical Society and some of the stuff, the other stuff that we've done, um, has been really good because um, not that long ago, I feel like I was very easily paralyzed by the idea of there's there's so much that you don't know mm-hmm. like who am i to get up on stage and talk about anything for, yeah, for what for was the last talk you just did um i just talked about um ca- the the um rise of cautionary tales for our salon on mythos uh so i talked about hilaire belloc and his rhyming poems and uh and how they were basically satire and um but the the darkness of fairy tales and and the the idea of horrible consequences for misbehavior uh, well, well, not spring heel jack that's something else um shock shock headed peter shock headed peter yeah and stuff like that and it's like but you know as far as you know you're saying who are who are you to talk about it's like well i knew some of the stuff but you you basically put it together in this great package of here's cautionary tales primer 101 get started i think it's i think for me it's about giving myself and other people permission to I I don't I am not an expert on cautionary tales or most of the other things that I've gotten on stage and talked about. But yeah, I definitely was not an expert on the Whiskey Rebellion. But the Whiskey Rebellion, or but I put together that, a nice. You know. you know a lot more about goats now than you used to. <laughs> uh, yeah, in assorted historical epics. Um, the goats are your fault too. I know. I know. <laughs> well, the the Gavril goat is pretty amazing. That is uh, again a quick. We should yeah. explain. Um, Gavril is about a two-hour drive north of Stockholm in Sweden. And in the mid-60s, they had a civil project of putting together this 40-foot straw goat. And uh, the goat is a stronger Christmas symbol in that, you know, it's a regional Christmas symbol. You know, Santa's 
the Yule goat, right? The Yule goat. You know, Santa it has a sleigh led by a goat and not reindeer. And, you know, somehow the uh, first, the guy that was putting this first together ran out of money and somebody else stepped in and it burnt down. And then sadly, there was no Christmas goat that year, but the insurance paid it off. The following year, they did another goat. And that had some problems too, burning down. And it they would do goats. And there's another organization that picked up the goats. And then while there was a time of two goats, mm-hmm. but... The safety goat, the, the auxiliary goat. goat. Yeah. But up until uh, current date, goats have about a one in three chance of surviving. They've been burnt down. They've been besieged by just vandals and uh, knocking them down with sticks. Uh, they've been run over by a car. There was a, there was an attempt at a there helicopter. There was an attempt at a helicopter to pull it up. It's been like you know pushed in the river. One of my favorites is the a uh, couple men dressed up like uh, Santa Claus and a snowman and the used flaming yeah. arrows yeah. and took it out. There's a guy from Ohio who set a, set it afire and thought, oh, I thought it was the cust- you know it was a local custom. He wound up being deported for it. Yeah, that's well. That's the thing is that when we first talked about it, I I had read the story about the the goat, and I thought it was made to be on fire. Yeah. And finding out that no, it was never supposed to be on fire in the first place. It was kind of a. I uh, mean, you know, yeah. what it looked like to me is like kind of like an insurance scam that got perpetuated. It was like an insurance scam that got perpetuated every year, and it, and then just it became a thing, and you know, to the point where like English bookmakers now take wages, you know, will take bets on. Every year, you know, give it one to, that's where we get the one to three odds. Um, But then, you know, going from that talk, which was a lot of fun, and, you know, I I wound up giving this big laundry list of every year, this happened and this happened, time of two goats. Um, But then my next talk was uh, the first one, the first odd salon premiere night when we did uh, Enlightenment, and I talked about the coffee house. Yeah. And that starts with goats. Yeah. Yeah, which then becomes a motif. Then it, then it's, now you, you know, have like, goats. You know, one goat is funny, two goats is a herd. Yeah. <laughs> and it went going on, going on from there. Um, but, you know, talk about the callbacks, you know, like I, I'm trying to make goat a callback, but it's really yeah, not. Yeah, it's, it's up to the audience. It's up to the audience. What, they want to take things and run with it. And I've noticed that, you know, lately there has been less, um, less enthusiasm behind it or like you know it's almost like people are calling to it you know you have slides that just say ships all right let's get it out and you know pandering just get this out of the way and by calling it i think it's kind of like diminished it or diluted it where people aren't jumping up and shouting ships vessels trimorans anymore i i agree (laughs) but i think i think maybe it's just a a thing that's time has come Yeah. yeah um so uh one of my one of my favorite nights was with the proto nights that we were talking about a little bit before the show was the obituary night we did where we mm-hmm. did uh, a night dedicated to famous San Franciscan San Francisco people both natives and people who really made their home here. Yeah, that was one of my favorite nights too. And you're you were saying how you know we don't have any speakers. Who wants to do this? Mm-hmm. And we ended up with 13 speakers and uh, at least I think it was 26 biographies and we went over four hours long, uh, which is too long. Um, <laughs> but it was it was full of really really terrific stories and I I, I found it really amazing because um, everybody just got a name to work with. There was mm-hmm. we had a long list of people who. Uh, had lived and died in San Francisco, and especially that were buried locally. 
Um, and everyone was only supposed to do two minutes. That was the idea. But it turns out nobody can do just two minutes. And um, everybody really took to their stories. And um, who, who was your obituary? Uh, I, I, uh, my obituary was Harvey Milk. Right, right. Um, and I remember, like, I kind of lost it. I got a little teary-eyed when I was mm-hmm. talking about him on stage. Um, so one of the, it was, that, that, that was an amazing night. Um, I admit, you know, uh, we had so many people to, and there was like, you know, so many names from that one. I, of course, only focused on the one I did because I might have a little ego. <laughs> you know, why else am I like, you know, trying to put myself in a podcast and on stage and doing all the things I do if I didn't have it. Right. But one of the things you do is you give, um, there's gifts for the speakers because, you know, you don't pay the speakers besides booze and books. Booze books. Um, but in the protos, you were giving, there were gifts. And um, I really like the, you know, like the, the books that I've gotten from speaking have a special place on my bookshelf because they are a badge of honor. I didn't just buy this book or find this book. You know, finding a book is, is a great pleasure, especially when you have the old books. But um, the this is a book I've earned. Uh, mm-hmm. For that first night, uh, you gave out uh, vintage copies of Candide. Yeah, which is uh, an important book to me. Which I admit I haven't finished reading yet, but I have, I have worked, you know, I have started on it, and it is, it's a fun weirdness. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing for me is, I, I first read it when I was probably like fifteen years old, and for me, it was the first old book that I read that I real where I realized. That something that old, as I realize now, it's not even that old, but mm-hmm. um, can be funny. Mm-hmm. And I found myself actually laughing at it. And it, it opened up a whole category of literature for me to realize that that long dead French people could, could actually be witty yeah, yeah. And, and hilarious. Yeah. And old, old books are not just dry. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to go wrong with Voltaire. He was, mm-hmm. a, he was a funny motherfucker. But. So what do we, what do we what the conclusion that he was the uh, forbearance of snark? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I think that was Jade's, Jade's yeah. talk was on, on the battle between him and Leibniz, um, at, which led to, led to the characters in, in Candide, which is why it was the speaker's book. <laughs> and there's, there's a whole bunch of wonderful illustrated editions of that book, so it's hard to go wrong. Mm-hmm. My favorite is the one, there's a small blue edition um, that has a gilt inlay that has uh, Cunegonde, uh, Candide's mm-hmm. great love in it, and she's being pursued by butt-pinching monkeys. <laughs> and it's all done in this like beautiful gilt inlay on the cover. <laughs> it's hard to go wrong with butt-pinching monkeys. Yeah, yeah. The, the historically or modern. Uh, yes. Um, so I was, I was going to ask you if you had been to go and see Harvey Milk's internment at the Columbarium. Yes, I have. Yes. I, I I was fortunate enough to have somebody tell me about the Calvarium early on, like because I've been in San Francisco for almost ten years, and I uh, went to uh, went there when I was still working at the Hostel International, and it was it is a beautiful building. Were you at the hostel at Fort Mason? No, I was uh, the one uh, Civic Center, oh, okay. uh, Ellis and Larkin. Yeah, uh, I actually lived there for about nine months in my two years of working with him. Oh, okay. They operate some really neat places. Yeah. The Fort Mason, Mason Street, and uh, Point Reyes are all in one big chunk. But um, tell me about the building, because we both know about it, but like... Um, so uh, the reason that I love the Columbarium, well, there's two reasons I love the Columbarium. The first is that it's, I mean, it's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's this 
stunning neoclassical rotunda building um, right in the middle of kind of a, a not very exciting um, subdivision in the city. But its history is even better because it's one of the only, the, there's only three places left in San Francisco with original um, interments from the gold rush era because San Francisco had one of the largest relocations of cemeteries in history. Um, starting in about the turn of the last century, about 1901, it became illegal to actually bury people in San Francisco. And this was like a combination of um, real estate because even though, at the, you know, when the city first boomed, these places seemed like they were at the outskirts of the city. But as soon as the city the actually city grew into the city it, grew, like just got nom, 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 nom. Yeah, just grew exponentially in the first few years. Um, and people were dying in, in droves uh, during the gold rush. I mean, mm. disease and murder were both yeah. epidemic. Um, and so the, these huge Color areas. Outbreaks and the such. Yeah, yeah. Uh, black death in 1901 <laughs> yeah we had we had some problems um and there were huge potter's fields like the entirety of land's end um was a gigantic potter's field where where people were buried like three deep and there were these huge cemeteries right in the middle of what we think of as the city now and so starting at the turn of the last century and going into like world war ii period they just dug up all the bodies and moved them and you, there were no new internments you had to be moved you had to be buried in San Francisco's new designated necropolis which is the city of Colma which to this day has something like 2.5 million internments and like a thousand living residents yeah. so it's like way vastly outnumbered by the dead um but it's incredible that they did this relocation because i can't even imagine the actual physical process of going and digging up hundreds of thousands of bodies and putting them into trucks and, and, they, and moving them and it was only the bodies that got moved yeah well mostly, mostly unless you unless you had family that could pay to have your mausoleum or tombstone moved they only move the body and i'm they, sure if, if they had a mausoleum they probably still had the family no, no no not necessarily a lot of them there's a, some at um i think it's sacred is it sacred heart there's a the, the catholic cemetery has mm. some of the nice monumental pieces but uh by and large all the headstones just went into rubble piles and the city collected this huge amount of, of ornamental well, stone. Resources, that, you know, yeah. why wait, let it go to waste? Yeah, and they used it to make breakwaters and um, and park pathways. And so at Aquatic Park and at Ocean Beach, there's breakwaters there where if you're there at low tide, um, you can see clear what are clearly tombstones. And at Ocean Beach, every once in a while, one will sort of get revealed Dislodged. by the sand and just complete like clear mm. with the inscription and everything and last time i was walking at land's end there was just a huge pile of footstones that with people's names on them just right there like in a big haphazard pile and buena vista park above the, the some of the flagstones are have been were reused and yours like most of the most times the they're named down but yeah. not always not always well and i think the ground has shifted a little bit mm -hmm. revealed stuff so anyhow there's only in the end there's only three burial places that were left in San Francisco. And one of them is Mission Dolores. The uh, military facilities in the Presidio. Right, the National Cemetery at the Presidio, and then the Columbarium. And the Columbarium used to be at the center of a much larger cemetery that went all the way up onto the hill um, under USF. You, you, yeah, under USF. Um, but the Columbarium remained, but for a long time it sat empty and it was slowly falling apart and the stained glass windows were destroyed and there were like raccoons and pigeons living there. And when the Neptune Society took it over, they brought in a small maintenance crew just to sort of get start getting things back together. And this one guy uh, named Emmett Watson, who was on the painting crew, took it upon himself to start restoring it. And he went way above and beyond um, 
what his his responsibilities were and slowly started cleaning and piecing this place back together and he still works there and this it's basically a monument to his and work. So he he started the restoration around the 70s? Yeah. And he's so he's been working for on this for 40 yeah. 40 some years. Yeah, it's his legacy and it's absolutely spectacular. He's still working on it. He's still there and he'll he'll give you a, a tour mm. if you're lucky enough to catch him. But the thing that that in San Francisco history that makes it also really interesting is that you've got these because of the nature of it it was people mostly before 1901 being interred there. Uh, so you have these very, very old urns. Um, and um, and then you have this empty space in the middle of San Francisco history. And then when they started reaccepting internments, it was it largely coincided with not just the um, end of the, or the, not, not the end of, I guess we're still in, the, the like the civil rights movements mm-hmm. in San Francisco, but also the AIDS epidemic. And it became a place of burial for a lot of people from the AIDS epidemic and also sort of from the countercultural fringes of San Francisco, which is one of the reasons why Harvey Milk is there in a place of honor, place of honor right by the front door. Um, and I, I don't think I've ever been there when there aren't fresh flowers at his, mm-hmm. at his spot. And one of the things that uh, I know it's a little bit different now, but when I first came to town, it was very much buried within a very mundane area. I mean, like Geary Avenue is a main thoroughfare from downtown to the, pretty much the ocean. And driving by, you know, you'd have to look for it to see it. You may not even be able to see it uh, coming, depending on which direction. It's like up and off a block. Yeah. And there's, there's this gorgeous building kind of nestled around, you know, mundane housing. And yeah. like there's nothing else in the neighborhood that has that, like any any out of their history to it. Yeah, well, there's probably still a lot of bodies, you know, just kind of shallowly under everyone's backyards, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, you can just see the top of the columbarium. I I see a rebooting of Poltergeist. Uh, Well, (laughs) um, another part of the cemetery story is that um, over at Land's End, where Lincoln Park, the the big golf course, Mm -hmm. is, they discovered when they were redoing the basement foundations of the Legion of Honor uh, museum that's there in the 90s, uh, they went down and they found they found not bodies, not like the oh we missed this one. They found hundreds of bodies. They had never been moved. The paperwork said that they'd been moved, but the bodies had never actually mm-hmm. been dug up and transported. Which there's still there's you can still find uh, there's still some tombstones and uh, there's a little Chinese altar memorial still at the golf course. Like weirdly, if you just walk mm-hmm. along the golf course, you can see them, but. People are speculating that basically the entire golf course is just, there's bodies underneath the entire thing. That was the potter's field for San Francisco. um, And that they just never got moved. They just landscaped right over it. No no corruption in the city at all, no. Well, and uh, yeah, it's amazing that we haven't had the the dead rising and uh, taking over. Poltergeist meets Night at the Museum. Yes. Oh, yeah, there you go. There's there's the movie. There's the movie pitch for you. But yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of... You know, a lot of what is modern San Francisco, I, I mean, I, I think like very few, very little modern San Francisco re- really reflects a lot of its history. Yeah, we're really, we're, we're pretty bad at historical preservation. It's mm-hmm. pretty sad. You have to, one of the things that I, I find upsetting is that um, when you're talking about all these amazing stories from San Francisco history and San Francisco, even though it has a pretty short history mm-hmm. by, by historical standards, it's just full of eccentrics and, and interesting stories right from, right from the, seemed, even, even the pre San Francisco era, the Yerba Buena era was full of like weirdos and, and eccentrics. it's always like it's been a magnet for it. It has always. 
Um, and the gold rush, I mean, it was basically everyone who, every ne'er-do-well who had, who had uh, nothing better going for them on the, on the East Coast or wealthy people who are ready to take advantage of everybody else um, all coming together in murder haven. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you want to talk, if you want to go and explore the city's past, you end up standing on places and saying, well, here is where the Crocker spite fence once was at the top of Knob Hill, but it's not here anymore. Here's, you know, a stone marking mm-hmm. where it once was. Or going out to, to Sutro Heights by the ruins of the bath. And I mean, the bath burned down uh, in probably a giant insurance scam, but that was, that was an actual fire. But Sutro's mansion at the top of the heights, that was torn down. And his botanical garden that was there as well, torn down. We just have not done a good job. Oh, well, uh, what was the, the private collection that later became a theme park? Um, are you talking about Playland at the beach? No, it was... Museum Mechanique? No, Museum Mechanique is still there, isn't it? it? It's now up here 49, yeah. Uh, no, but the... Oh, it was one of the talks... It's problems the talks blurred together. Uh, one of the talks about uh, basically fairly rich to-do person had an estate. Oh, Woodward's Gardens. Woodward, Woodward's yeah, that Gardens. was in the mission. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was a private estate where um, a guy... Had a had a um, an enormous collection of outdoor taxidermy, which I think everyone agrees is a terrible idea. <laughs> um, and then like theme park rides, and he opened it up. He opened it up to the public, and it was it was a pretty popular destination. Um, and then Sutro took over his collection of weird taxidermy when Woodward's Gardens closed. There's still a, there's a plaque in the neighborhood. It's right near where the armory, where like Fourteenth and Mission, something in that category. Um, there's a plaque that you can see that shows where Woodward Gardens was. But Sutro took over all of his like weird moth-eaten and damp taxidermy and had it on display at the Sutro Baths because there was a mezzanine floor that was a like a cabinet of curiosities right. from around the world, except for they were actually from... Down the street. Down the street. <laughs> um, and there's some very sad photographs of when they, when they finally closed up at Sutro Baths and they were getting rid of the taxidermy. There's pictures of them sort of like getting hooked into the back of trucks just like upside down and piles we're done with you yeah yeah and if having weird velveteen rabbit crossover thoughts it's pretty sad but but some of the collections so sutro the other part of his collection was that he collected uh egyptiana Mm -hmm. which was you know very in vogue at the at the end of the century and that collection which includes a whole bunch from the the armana period armana i think i'm mispronouncing that uh it's it's a a very specific uh, epoch in in Egyptian history with the elongated skulls and like big long fingered people and he has a bunch of statuary from that period and at least one mummy and those are successfully did not get hooked into the back of trucks and disappeared there at San Francisco State in the Egyptian collection mm. so it's part of the museum studies collection there and it's I think it's closed to the public except for by appointment but you can it, they open it up at least once a year you can go and see it and uh, they've they've managed to hold on to that collection which is nice instead of just disappearing into the mists of time like so many other things yeah you know like lost photos uh like one of the uh chicago things that i grew up with is uh riverside park was uh just an amusement park that was in the middle of the city on the north side like uh belmont and western area right off the river that my parents went to but it was like famous for dilapidated rides and the place falling apart and running out of money. And there's a lot of, you know, great creepy photos from it, but there's a shopping mall on there now. How long ago? Um, so if my parents went there, we're talking sixties to seventies, it was probably, you know, 
I, I don't remember exactly, but I'm, I'm thinking it's like mid 70s was probably the last day tickets were sold. I feel like there's something that happened in that era because that's also the era that, well, Sutrabaz burned down, but it was at the end of a long decline. Mm-hmm. Like nobody cared about it anymore. Playland at the beach closed down. Um, the There was that sweet aerial tram at Land's End also. It closed down. Wait, aerial, yes. wait, aerial tram? Tell me. There, tell me. There was an aerial tram. tram. <laughs> um, you can still see the, the spot where it anchored up on the cliffside uh, if you're looking down over the sort of semicircular area that is Sutrobaths. It took off from, um, there was like a fake waterfall, and it took <laughs> off, and it went past the cliff house or to the cliff house and then turned around. Like it, you, mm-hmm. it, was, it, was, a, it was just a quick scenic thing so you could see um, Seal Rock out there and uh, the breakers and everything. I think it was like a four-minute round trip. I, imagine, I just imagine it as totally magical. I've seen postcards of it, mm-hmm. and I'm so angry that we don't have it oh. now. Um, but yeah, they, they rooted out. There was also there was the shoots. Um, at Haight Street, there were a bunch of saltwater baths. Sutra baths mm-hmm. wasn't the only one. And we have so little remaining. We have, there's those, those cement slides, the Seward Street slides that remain, and a few little hidden treasures in Golden Gate Park because um, it sort of has held on to its its legacy of, of weird little corners. Unfortunately, it doesn't get re- remodeled and rebuilt and redeveloped. Yeah, although it does sort of fall down around the edges. Mm-hmm. We're lucky that those windmills got restored because mm-hmm. they, were, they were not in good shape. Uh, they're all beautiful again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we 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 have we have not we have not done a great job of preserving such a short history. Mm-hmm. But look, I mean, I'm glad that there are archival collections that do a little bit of service to it with with objects and letters and and all that kind of stuff. Oh, you actually, we were talking about this on the way in uh, the old mint building. Oh yeah, yeah. That uh, you're saying how it's like the San Francisco Historical Society has had. Here, here's this building. It needs repair. It need you know, but make a museum with it. And for ten years, they haven't. Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, they've yeah, they've had it for I believe it's a decade, and it hasn't turned into a museum of San Francisco. And it's it's really sad because we don't. There isn't even a tiny museum of, of mm-hmm. the city of San Francisco. I can't think of a city with a similar yeah, you like, know history and population that like the Chicago Historical Society yeah. has a gorgeous museum that I grew up with. I mean, I went to this as a kid, you know, school outings and you, you'd have this room full of dioramas and all this other stuff. Yeah. And, you know, San Francisco doesn't. Yeah, it's crazy to me. I mean, we have we have resources. There's the California Historical Society mm-hmm. has a wonderful collection, but their, their gallery space is rotating uh, different California themes, not just San Francisco. Right. Um, so at right now, there's a beautiful um, 1915 pa- um, Panama Pacific exposition um, installation there that has a whole wonderful diorama that shows the 1915 expo that was at the marina. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really cool. So it happens to be a San Francisco piece right now. But for not just for a visitor, but for locals, if you want to if you want to connect to your local history, if you want to find out the things, there's no place to go. And this like the San Francisco Public Library has the San Francisco History Room on the sixth floor. Um, is a wonderful collection of books and a bunch of stuff down in the stacks that if you know to ask for it, right. you can have. That's where I saw the Sutra Baths uh, blueprints. They have the entire mm. set. It's like 200 plus draw- original drawings from you know the late 1800s of the plans for the Sutra Baths, including it, it had a totally different roof line that they planned and they have, they have photographs from the construction. Um, but you have to know. You have to right. know to ask. Um, and... 
the San, as to the best of my knowledge, the San Francisco Historical Society's collections are not in any one place. They're they're dispersed um, and not held. And I just I think it's a tragedy. I think it's really I think it's really sad that we don't even have a representative token mm-hmm. place that celebrates the history. I mean, that's what the they, the intent of giving them the mint was is that yeah. the mint. Mint the uh, uh, how old is when was the mint enacted? Well, it survived the 1906. Right. So and it was uh, because it had its own water supply. It has a well. Uh, and but it was a functioning mint until. Do you know like when it when they transitioned over to the the current I don't, mint? I don't, I don't. But I want I want to say that that's like late gold rush era. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's managed to survive two earthquakes. But it's damaged. It's a yeah. damaged building. It's damaged. Partially because of earthquake stuff and also just time, yeah, and it's an imperfect space. Uh, even though it's beautiful, it's it's an awkward space because of the way that it was designed as a mint. It's right. not you it, know, a big yeah, vast hall that you. It's would meant expect. to be a fortress, right? Um, and but it's also like you know, right off of Union Square, very much prime real estate. Totally, with no parking. <laughs> but I, I mean, nearish to other to other stuff. I mean, it's across um, the street from a parking garage. I. I Going back to the museum thing, though, it's, I just feel a lot. I hear a lot of people, especially at some of our mm. our talks and things, talking about how upset they are that people don't engage with history. And it's one thing to talk about world history, but mm. when you're talking about local history, I how can you expect people to know their local history when the resources are utterly lacking? Right. When you're not surrounded, like if you go to London or New York or Chicago, mm-hmm. um, Paris. All of these places, ha- and San Francisco has so, such an identity, such a self-identity that and it puts so, out to the world. Yeah, I mean, San Francisco fits in that list before Chicago does. Right. And all of those places, there are immediate places that you can go that celebrate the identity and the history of, of the, that place. And I, we actually met today at the um, San Francisco Visitors mm-hmm. Information Center, and there was not a single book available on the, on the history of San Francisco in that visitor center. And I looked at all the pamphlets on the things that they were suggesting that people see. And other than the San Francisco city guide tours, which are amazing. Um, and one flyer for the Haas Lilienthal house that says, you know, you can go and visit a, a historic Victorian, nothing on display on the walls there, which is all like flyers for tourists to right. go and see, have anything to do with the true character of San Francisco or San Francisco history. And I, that it's so weird to me that that's what is being, packaged for yeah. tourists is like yeah. i mean and, i'm sure there's like you know golden gate bridge and, and golden gate park and all the you know the the iconic things but yeah but even when people I, I just took some visitors through golden gate park and when people go to go on the you know segway tours mm-hmm. or whatever or the bicycle tours through golden gate park even when they're going through all that effort of going to the park, they're not seeing the hidden corners. They're not seeing the Angler's Lodge or the model the model yacht collection, which is an extraordinary collection. It's the second oldest model yacht club in the United States, and it has this gorgeous collection hidden away in a WPA building that you would never know. Is exists. that up on the by Strawberry Hill on up on that lake? No, it's not Stowe Lake. Stowe Lake. Uh, it's uh it's on Spreckles Lake. It's a little tiny lake okay. that has like a, a concrete border. Portals of the Past are there, which is the remains of a building from the 1906 that fell down in the 1906 mm-hmm. earthquake uh, next to Lloyd Lake. Um, there's uh, more WPA murals inside the Beach Chalet, along with like really gorgeous carved uh, banisters and a bunch of a postcard collection from historical scenes from, from Golden Gate Park. Um, 
and we do we do a we do a, a crummy job of showcasing those things, which I think I, I just think it's it's a pity. But I'm glad that um, I think one of the things about this doing the Odslan project and some of the other related projects for the last few years is realizing that we can consistently pack a house. I yeah. mean, the, the series that we did at the, at the California Historical Society sold out the entirety of the run um, for a series on history, science, art, and adventure that we can, that you can, and so often my experience over the last few years has been working with organizations like them or working with Cal Academy or with like small, weird historical groups. And after bringing people in who get really excited about their collections, they come to me and they say, how, do, how did you find these people? It's crazy. It is. I mean, I've, I've learned so much about San Francisco history from coming to Odd Salon, you know, especially uh, the California Historical Society series where you, basically you did one night was a 20-year chunk or 40-year chunk. About that, yeah. And it was just like, I, I, I missed the first couple and I, I regret it. Yeah. I, I just think that it builds, it builds something really important. It builds cultural engagement. Like mm -hmm. you don't care about the fact that we are bad about historical preservation unless you have a reason to care. And one of the best ways to, to build that caring is to tell stories. And yeah. that, com that combination of, of place and story, I think, is really, really important. And getting people involved, not just to come and be in the audience, but also to like learn how to, to tell these stories and to find these stories. And going back to what you were saying about the cemetery salon or the, mm -hmm. the obituary salon, I thought I, I still think it's amazing that so many people got so excited about stories of people that they'd never met and that for the most part they had never even heard of necessarily. Mm -hmm. They picked the names off of a list and then like could not rein themselves in to only talk for two minutes. And that's just an indicator to me. And that was a sold out night. That was yeah. packed. Um, and I, I, I feel like there's so much more that we can do to sort well, of like, celebrate that stuff. One of the things that is also is that you're engaging people with a lot of humor as well. You know, we're talking about the, the call outs and, you know, that helps, you know, like, Oh, ships. Yay. Trimarans. You know, that, that whole, it, it makes it unstuffy and makes it approachable and makes it funny. And well, history is, is rude and it's full of everything. It's every yeah. <laughs> story of everything that ever happened to anyone ever anywhere. It and is, nothing is new. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's rude and it's funny and it's, uh, it's full of everything. Oh, like one, Jade had is one of my favorite slides of all times. Uh, the temperance. Oh God, I'm horrible for names. Uh, Carrie Nation. Carrie Nation, where he has a picture of Carrie Nation, who was famous for basically going in and and just taking an axe to saloons and yeah. booze. And there's one slide where she did where he put Carrie Nation's head on Hulk's body yeah. and <laughs> Carrie Nation smash. And it's like I, that right there is the perfect odd salon yeah, slide. Ne next time when you see the, the sign that says we cater to all nations except Carrie Nation, now yeah. you know who it is. Yes. And because, because of that. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's gateway drug history. Yes. And I, I always go back to that. It's not meant to be, um, the final official thing, but there's plenty of there's plenty of books and resources and archives and and wonderful opportunities to rabbit hole yourself in research. But if an increasing number of people can start to care a little bit mm -hmm. and recognize the the key themes and the, the the key names and get excited about dead people buried in coma and want to go and find the tombstones um, and learn about sutro and his silver empire at the edge of the city or the aerial trams that mm -hmm. were once there and be angry that they're not there anymore. i know it's like i just found out about them and i'm like angry it's like yeah. i want to go yes 
Um, but I, I feel like it, it helps build the culture, keep the culture yeah. of the city. And, and it also celebrates that it's always been a city full of, of weirdos and they were there before us. And yeah. And they'll be there after we're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming in and talk uh, and pretty much nerding out historically. <laughs> I mean, one of my normal questions I get up is like, you know, what do you nerd out about? But I don't think we needed to ask that question directly <laughs> because we covered a lot of great, like, you know, I even learned stuff that I didn't know uh, and this po- uh, just talking today. So thank you very much, Ndada, for uh, joining us today. And where can people find you and, and Adsalon and stuff, you know? Um, we're very easy to find. You can find Oddsalon at oddsalon.com. Uh, and on the Facebook, we have a Facebook group that's called Something Weird. So Facebook forward slash groups forward slash something weird. That's where the sort of the conversation goes. And I, I feel we would be both in big trouble if yes. we did not pimp out the uh, Oddsalon Twitter account. Absolutely. We we uh, mostly live, we live tweet the shows and then occasionally tweet in between. But the live the live uh, tweet streams are like the interpretive dance version mm-hmm. of Oddsalon. And you can find those uh, on Twitter at Oddsalon, uh, maintained by the amazing Jade Hoffman. Yay. Um, any other projects you'd like to talk about? I think that's it for now.